Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. This week we'll be talking all things Latin America, reflecting on the Guatemalan presidential election and the lead up to Ecuador's general election, first round of which took place in August and we'll be expecting the second round in a few weeks time. Along the way we'll be answering the big question, who will be Ecuador's new president and can he or she lead the country into calmer political waters? It's Sunday the 10th of September 2023. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide but unify. Not now. I am not a fighter and not a fighter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Joining me, as always, on the other side of the world is my co-host, Churn. Churn, business as usual down a Zoom link this week. It really is back to business as usual, but nice to see you again. Uh, we're back to uh, back to usual. My body has no idea what time it is, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> How are you otherwise? Yeah, not too bad, apart from boiling in my own home because of this UK heat, we- heat wave. Other than that, we're all good. We're all good. Well, Sam, last last time was a very special episode because it was obviously the our second face to face episode that we had done. But Sam, can you guess what today's episode podcast episode number is? One, two, three. Exactly. So we only have another hundred and twenty three more to go to make two, four, six, haven't we? <laughs> exactly. Well, Chen, shall we kick on? Because there's a few things to talk about today. Two um, presidential elections in Latin America, um, a part of the world that we've talked about a few times on this podcast. And in fact, the second country we're going to talk about today, Ecuador, we actually talked about their presidential election two years ago. So we're slightly ahead of schedule on that one. And I'm sure we'll unpack why that is in a second. But why don't we start with Guatemala? Because their two rounds have actually concluded. Yes, indeed. And we can tell you that the new president is Bernardo Alvaro or Samila, who was elected in the second round of the presidential election over the former first lady, Sandra Torres of the National Unity of Hope. He was elected with 61% to her 39.1% of the result. We should also let you know that in Guatemala, that both candidates emerged from a field of 22 in the first round with a very low vote share, although it was Torres who emerged victorious with 21% of the vote, while Alvareo only won 16% of the vote. The first round took place in June, and the second round took place on the 11th of August. The election was marred by judicial decisions surrounding parties and challenges to the validity of individual candidates, which impacted the entire democratic process, something we will talk a little bit about later on. Um, Just quickly mention the parliamentary election, which took place simultaneously as the first round of the presidential elections, saw 160 seats to the Congress and a fair degree of turnover, with Vamos, led by the third-place presidential candidate Manuel Corda, coming first with 39 seats, up 23. There were big losses for Torres' National Unity of Hope, Regarding 28 seats down 26, Samila came third with 23 seats up 16, and Cabell, which is led by the fifth place candidate Edmund Mullet, 
came fourth and entered parliament with 18 seats. But the focus will be very much of the discussion on the presidential election. So Sam, let's let's kick things off. What was your reaction to Bernardo Alvarillo winning the presidential election? And what takeaways did you have? I mean, the reaction when I look into it is quite surprising because if you look at opinion polls, now the it is worth saying that opinion polls were few and far between and um, don't have historically a great reputation for getting the results right. Um, in fact, this is only really the second presidential election in Guatemalan history that has had extensive opinion polling coverage. So take this with a pinch of salt. But a few weeks before the election, before the first round, Bernardo Arevalo was polling around 2 to 5%. So was not even part of the conversation in any way. In fact, he was polling in about fifth or sixth place pretty persistently. So then to even make the second round at all, let alone then go on to be elected president, I think is a huge surprise. And a lot of observers of Guatemalan politics were also surprised that that happened because his candidacy came from relative nowhere. And he beat out candidates like uh, Manuel Conde, who was the presidential candidate from Vamos, who is the party of the outgoing president, Alejandro Giamatti. Um, other candidates were polling um, pretty well. I mean, I guess one of my big takeaways is that the polling was absolutely appalling. I mean, Edmund Molle, Zuri Rios, both were predicted to perform very well, and they came fourth and fifth, um, respectively, in that election. Um, and... As I said, Bernardo Arevalo was nowhere to be seen. Um, and in fact, some opinion polls didn't even have Sandra Torres predict, um, making it into the second round. So to then have those two candidates and for Bernardo Arevalo to go on to win, I think is a, a big surprise. Do you have any thoughts on why that might have happened? Well, I think the biggest surprise is that, yes, you are right, that uh, Alvareo seemed to have come out of nowhere. I mean, the last few polls I looked at in the four polls, which hit which since they've been conducted from June, throughout June, had him between 5 to 7%. To suddenly get 15% feels very off as well. And Zuri Rio seems to be having the opposite effect because the lowest I saw she polled was one poll we've had at 9%, which was sort of familiar, similar to the end result, but all other polls put her at least above 15%. So this seems to be a big polling miss. I think two things I would like to say, first of all. Firstly is that this is a country which has not had a long history of polling. So I think it's therefore very difficult to reach particularly a lot of voters and it has had no track record of trying to reach that as well. And secondly as well, I, uh, three reasons. Secondly, I think as a developing country, it's a lot harder. They, do, they don't necessarily have the landlines or the internet to, to, to try and reach some of the more rural people who would come out to vote in a general election. And thirdly, I do question the accuracy of people who, what, what they tell the pollsters themselves. I think that we're going to be talking about the overall level of trust in the Guatemalan political process. But if you do not trust the political process, why would you tell the truth to pollsters? And you might just have a general distrust of whoever the candidate is. And some of these polls itself that we could see, they could often have uh, a motive behind it regarding who they want to see as the top two candidates and therefore try to influence the political process. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think your point about trust is really important. Um, and I've got some stats to back it up. So 
9% of people in a survey in the last 20 years said that their right to participate freely in political life was guaranteed. 9% thought that. 2.9% um, of people last year said that the Giamatti administration was at least good. 2.9%. Um, and actually, Guatemala ranks 150th in the 180 countries listed in the Global Transparency Index. So that's just to sort of contextualize the level of um, despondency towards um, the democratic process or how it's carried out. And there were, as you referenced at the start, there was a number of corruption scandals within this campaign alone, let alone, I mean, firstly, the Samila party, which was Bernardo Arevalo's party between the first and second round was suspended by the Public Prosecution Service for 24 hours um, for falsification of signatures when they achieved party status back in 2017. That was overturned the next day by the Constitutional Court, so the second round was allowed to continue. But for that to happen in the first place, I think, says a lot about where the process is at. But more notably, I think, is the corruption background leading up to the first round, where you had the Attorney General of the incoming um, of the outgoing government dismissing the head of the Special Prosecutor's Office. Um, they ratcheted up investigations on judicial officials linked to anti-corruption cases. Um, they arrested the founder of um, an anti-corruption newspaper. Numerous journalists went into exile after investigations into them were opened. And two candidates, Carlos Pineda and Thelma Cabrera, both of whom were performing relatively well in early opinion polls, um, were thrown out. Um, and their vote shares, which were about um, 9, 10% at the time that they were thrown out, could have gone anywhere. And I think that's maybe one of the explanations for why Bernardo Arevalo ended up doing particularly well, because they represented the sort of, not the policies that he represented, but the type of candidacy he represented for certain. And in fact, um, Thelma Cabrera back in 2019 had obtained 11% in the final um, results of the first round. So it's a candidate with a, rare, a relatively strong base of support in this election. So with all of that context, I think really we shouldn't be particularly surprised that something surprising happened. Well, at 2.9%, Sam, have we actually found a, a head of state or head of government more unpopular than Liz Truss was? Seems like we have so, isn't it? I think we may have just done um, less popular than Liz Truss and less popular than any French president ever. Well, there you go then. So it shows you that um, that's very, that's, that was rather amusing. I did read that 2.9% there. Did, that was my initial thinking. I think just on the Carlos Panida front, you're absolutely right that he was actually thrown out. And I think it's also to understand the context of why he was rise, experienced a sharp increase in the opinion polls over the month of April. I mean, his month, his performance in the month of April was, there's no other word for it, astonishing, Sam. Because in March, he was polling only about 8%. And even in some polls in late April, he was only polling about 10%. And then suddenly he was polling, you know, 20%, tw as high as even 22%. And a lot of his rise in the opinion polls was attributed to three things. Firstly, an outsider profile. Secondly, the ability to harness social media. And that's largely because he had the same, same campaign, social media campaigner as Jimmy Morales in 2015. And he was another outsider who was elected to become the president of Guatemala. And thirdly, he was being able to form a what is often seen, he was able to see as communicate closely and colloquially with voters. So I think that really showed that Guatemalan voters were looking for something new. 
And when he was disqualified, I didn't think that his voters would want to necessarily go to one of the already established candidates and was shopping around for an alternative outsider, which Bernardo Alvarado seems to have really tapped into. And you're right that the election took place amidst deep unpopularity. You talked about some of the figures. I'll tell you some of the reasons why. A sharp increase in violent crime, corruption, gang violence, poverty, high cost of living, for example. And you don't even need to look at the opinion polls. You can look at how people have voted based on their feet because there's been a large emigration of Guatemalans to the United States or attempting to get to the United States. That tells you everything about the mood of Guatemalans right now, isn't it? No, exactly. And I just wonder, I did think when we were planning this section, do you think that um, the suspension, albeit brief, of Bernardo Arevalo between the first and second round almost sealed his victory? Because in a way, it was a bit of a political gift, because in an atmosphere where there was a lot of um, anti-corruption, people opposed the kind of shenanigans that had been going on beforehand that when you see a candidate who is then the victim of that um, he becomes to represent everything voters mistrusted in the incumbent government which they didn't like possibly but i also think it has a lot so his victory was probably cemented but i also think he had a head start over his opponent have you been researching a lot about sandra torres Seth? To what extent? Because I was talking about how she, um, this is her third presidential run and third successive second place finish. So she's a known quantity to Guatemalans. And that's exactly the point. She is a known quantity in Guatemala. And when you have an atmosphere that is so much against established politicians, I just don't think she was the right fit for now. She has, as you said, run for president three times in 2015, 2019 and 2023. And let's be honest, she lost by big margins in all three attempts. In 2015, she lost nearly 2-1 to one against Jimmy Morales. In 2019, against outgoing President Alejandro uh, Giamatti, she lost 58-42. to 42, And now she's lost 61-39. to 39. And both 2019 and 2023 follow a similar pattern in the sense that she led the first round, but failed to in the second round when it was just a straight fight between the top two candidates. Suggesting she has a level of support, but is fundamentally disliked by the median voter in Guatemala. And just a bit of background profile about her, Sandra Torres is a former first lady of Guatemala as the wife of President Avera Colom, who was the president between 2008 and 2011, uh, 2008 and 2012. She divorced him in 2011, but most Guatemalans saw that as an attempt to circumvent the constitution of Guatemala, which prohibited relatives of the incumbent president and vice president from running as candidates. So they didn't really believe that the divorce was the divorce was more political rather than emotional or driven out of love. So I think she's had a, such a long track record. She said, suggests to me that she has a level of support, but cannot consolidate the support when she gets to the second round. I think not helped by the fact that, do you know what her husband's approval rating was by the end of her pres- his presidency? I'm not sure, no. Well, I can tell you that his husband, her, her husband, left the presidency with a disapproval rating of 96%. So, not much better than... So, it's it's not just Giamatti who has approval problems. Well, no, but he had an approval rating double that Giamatti at 4%. So, you know, he's doing a little bit better. <laughs> well, Chen, I mean, it's it's been an interesting chat about Guatemala, a country that... 
we've not talked about before um, and I found it quite fascinating to look into but do you not think it's interesting that um, Sandra Torres is her candidacy of the National Unity of Hope Party that party is the single largest political party in terms of members in Guatemala and to not have um, a, rel- a, a very good track record of providing presidents I thought was quite interesting for a party that's so sizable compared to the other ones that are on the table or is it very much a bit like in the theme of other South American countries we've covered where the party system is kind of irrelevant because it's more just political vehicles for individuals in a presidential environment? I think there's the one thing to say as well, but Sam, do you also trust the party membership figures that you see in front of you? Well, that's also true. I also think as well that in some of these Latin American countries, a bit like Paraguay is where my mind turns to is how much are they actually genuine members of the party or how much they see party having a party membership as influential in getting civil service jobs. I think we always have to not discount this possibility. The one thing that I did think, Sam, is that do you not also see um, that, that this is another, if you want to just talk about broader takeaways as well, is that I, I found it really interesting is that my mind was that, isn't there so many parallels between Sandra Torres and Keiko Fujimori of Peru as well? Because they both came to prominence as a result of relations with male politicians. Sandra Torres is the ex-wife of, uh, uh, of President Colum. And of course, Keiko Fujimori is the daughter of a longtime Peruvian president, Alberto Fujimori. But both have failed to win the presidency so far after three attempts, isn't it? It's funny you say that because that did come to mind while we were speaking this morning. I think there are interesting parallels to be drawn there, but I wonder if both of them have the same, if you fail, try, try, try again. So I wonder if we'll be seeing either Keiko Fujimori or Sandra Torres back in the political front line the next time we cover those respective countries. And more importantly as well, um, if you want to talk about broader consequences, um, President Alvarillo has said that he wants to expand relationship with China. And Guatemala is one of the few Taiwan's allies. So I'm wondering if there could also be geopolitical impacts of this as well. Because we saw in Honduras with the election of Xiomara Castro that she has switched allegiance from Taiwan to China. Now, Alvarillo says that he wants to maintain Guatemala's long-standing allegiance with China. But China's policy is that no country it has ties with can maintain separate diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So we shall see how that dalliance goes, isn't it? Yes, and I think it'll also be interesting to watch Guatemala because I'm not entirely convinced that we've seen the end of the instability because I think the attempts to disqualify Arevalo pre-runoff and pre-first round may continue through to the inauguration in January. So... Hold your horses for now. Um, there may be three months of uh, instability to come. Or just ask Pedro Castillo how that goes. Hello and welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. We'll now be moving a little bit further south than Guatemala to talk about Ecuador, who had their first round of the presidential election at the end of August and will be holding their second round in October. Um, we know who the candidates will be for this second round. It will be um, Luisa Gonzalez and Daniel Naboa, who will be competing in a few weeks' time for the presidency. The election, however, was 
not scheduled. It was triggered by the incumbent president Guillermo Lasso when he inv um, invoked the Muerta Cruzada clause, dissolving the National Assembly, resigning as president um, and triggering new presidential elections. And this all happened back in May 2023. Lasso then announced he would not be standing in this election and the winner will serve from 2023 through to 2025, which was the scheduled end date of the previous term. So this election we'll be having again in two years time. It might become a two year term rather than a four year term as originally as originally planned. The results for the National Assembly election, which were held on the day of the first round of the election, show that the citizen revolution movement of um, Luisa Gonzalez came in a clear first place with Movimento Construye, the construction party in second place. Um, and its presidential candidate was Christian Sarita, who actually was a big story internationally because um, they replaced the assassinated candidate Fernando Village Vincencio, um, who was assassinated in the middle of this campaign um, on the road to the first round of the presidential election. So, Chen, quite an eventful election, even though we've not had the eventual second round yet. So, I thought first, could you just explain a little bit about how this election came about? Why did Guillermo Lasso resign and why have we ended up with an election this early? Well, before I do that, Sam, I just want to quickly turn back to Guatemala because one thing I did read about whilst we were having a little break is, do you? we talked about the disillusionment of Guatemalans. In the first round, do you know how many percent of Guatemalans support their vote? I don't. The percent, the share of votes cast or invalid was 17%. So nearly one in five ballots cast were spoiled. That's a, on a turnout of 60%, Sam. That's pretty amazing. Well, did you see the percentage for the spoiled ballots in the election we're about to talk about? In Ecuador, it's only about 7%, right? I saw. 7% on the presidential level, 23% on the National Assembly level. Wow. So you want to talk about disillusionment. We have classic examples, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about it with that um, hanging over it. So... I think that's a very good point to start because I, I wonder if President Guillermo Lasso, he has faced, shall we say, a turbulent two years in charge. But I wonder if his seats were sown because if, let's just rewind back to the 2021 Ecuadorian general election when he won against um, the, the then candidate for um, UNES candidate, which is affiliated with uh, Rafael Correa, 52-48. Quite a surprising result, if you recall. But... Sam, if you recall from that election as well, the parliament was controlled by the, the, the people aligned to former president Rafael Correa, who was much more left-wing, and Guillermo Lasso is a centre-right conservative. So he already had a hostile parliament to deal with. And so therefore, I think when things start to get tough, as he never to be did, parliament was much more willing to pull the trigger and trying to impeach him than it would have other ordinary had. Because Lasso did face accusation of corruption, starting from a report by La Posta at the start of the year, which detailed allied alleged corruption plots within public companies set that around the president's brother-in-law, with accusations linking the brother-in-law with the Albania mafia. And this was as such of these uh, plots emerged with the context of the Pandora Papers, where he also was accused of having foreign bank accounts in a tax haven. So in January 2023, the National Assembly created the Commission for Truth, Justice and the Fight for Corruption. 
and his accuser and La, with La Posta reporting that his brother-in-law and his associate, the president's brother-in-law and the, the, the brother-in-law's associate were tasked to control two government agencies, the Customs Office and the Energy Ministry, which will help traffic weapons, drugs and funds needed into Ecuador. In February, the Attorney General announced an investigation into Lasso's dismissal of a police investigation into that associate's ties with a drug trafficking ring, and the charges alleged that Lasso pressured the state police commander and the drug chief to conceal the investigation report. In March, the National Assembly began the impeachment process, which Lasso believed was politically motivated, and the Constitutional Court got involved, approving the charges of embezzlement, but dismissed two charges of bribery. And because it had to be a vote of the National Assembly, and with a majority of lawmakers voting in favour of an impeachment trial, the writing was kind of along the wall. And so on the 16th of May, the National Assembly officially began the impeachment proceedings against Lasso, and we took a day later, on the 17th May, for Lasso to invoke Muerto Cresada, allowing the president to dissolve the National Assembly and call for earlier presidential and legislative elections. The first time that a president has used that mechanism to avoid, avoid impeachment. Sam, what does Moita Cresida mean in English? And did I miss anything out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty comprehensive, but it's been quite a turbulent story for Guillermo Lasso. I, I think over the past two years, there's been multiple times, a bit like Pedro Castillo in Peru, where we've been on either resignation or impeachment watch um, on and off due to various scandals across the time. But it was ultimately that scandal involving his brother-in-law and the Albanian mafia that led to led to the collapse of the government. If you want to know what Muerta Cresada means in Spanish, it means mutual death. So it's a declaration by the president that they want to end their term, but in turn, uh, that they want to end the legislative term, but in turn, they have to end their term as well. So it's to it's to prevent the president unilaterally dissolving the National Assembly and remaining in office themselves. It's saying you have to go to elections as well. Um, that was the intention of it in the Constitution. But aside from that, I mean, the election itself has been pretty turbulent as well. We, we already mentioned that um, Fernando Villavincencio was assassinated at a campaign rally um, a few weeks before the first round took place. And it was the first presidential candidate in Ecuador to be assassinated since 1978. Well, also, Luisa Gonzalez, who did progress the second round, she was admitted to hospital because at one campaign ra rally, she got attacked with pepper spray and tear gas, allegedly by the national police, who um, said that they were trying to quell quite a turbulent crowd that she was arriving at. So that's one candidate was assassinated, one admitted to hospital and had to have her eyes flushed out. So it's been quite a, a violent um, campaign and quite a hostile environment for all candidates. Um, and that's sort of the context we're going into this second round in a few weeks time that we don't entirely anticipate it to be straightforward. Because really, I think hanging over this election is a fundamental divide in the country between a significant part of the population who yearns for a return to careerism and a significant part of the population that would literally vote for anything else. So it's a very divided country um, and it's starting to turn quite tense and violent, I think, in this campaign because of it. The one thing I was surprised by is that when the president invoked the cause, he therefore took two days later, he decided not to run. Were you surprised by the decision not to run? 
And if so, why do you think he decided not to run? Because let's be honest, two years into the gig, that really is no time at all, isn't it? No, I mean, there's this part, there's a cynical part of me which takes his decision not to run as an admission of guilt. Um, but I think there's also a different political thing going on here, which is I think he recognises that if he is on the ballot, it leads to a much higher chance of the Correa wing of Ecuadorian politics succeeding. Um, whereas I think he probably thought, if there's a new person who I at least tacitly endorse, um, it doesn't have my name on the ballot that is more likely to lead to a return to careerism because Andrea Rouse, the candidate he beat two years ago, um, who was Rafael Correa backed, is on the ballot um, as the vice presidential candidate of Luisa Gonzalez. So this is deeply connected to Rafael Correa's politics. And in fact, Luisa Gonzalez has made no secret of the fact that if she were to win the presidential election, Rafael Correa would be although he's in exile, would be um, a key advisor to the government. So it is explicitly a return to that era, whether people um, like it or not. So I wonder if there is an element of Guillermo Lasso having the self-awareness that his candidacy is not the candidacy who in this moment is capable of beating them. I, I think I think, I think think just a bit more straightforward than that, that he knew he was going to lose and didn't want to be seen losing. That, that that that's what I would say. And I mean that too. But he and also I think you know he had his his approval ratings in 2023 was 14%. So I think the chances of re-election was low and his disapproval ratings was 52%. Now by Guatemala standards, that is stratospherically popular, but I still don't think it's enough to win a, a two two round election system like election, isn't it? No, not at all. I mean, Chen, we talked about um, the Guatemala election, bring it back slightly, about that being a surprise in terms of which candidates to progress the second round. There is an element of that going on in Ecuador, isn't there, as well? Because Luisa Gonzalez always felt like a bit of a shoe into the second round, but that's not exactly true of Daniel Naboa, is it? No, it really isn't. And you're kind of right that this election was going to be who of the other candidates was going to face against Luis Gonzalez. And Luis Gonzalez has led every poll from June to August as the top place candidate. So there was no question that she would be uh she would be in the second round itself. Now, Daniel Oboa, if you want to talk about Guatemala polling having a bad day, it seems like the Ecuadorian polling had an even worse bad day. Because in the last couple of polls, conducted on the 9th of August, uh, around 9th to 12th of August, before the election of the 20th, he was polling about 2 to 3% in opinion polls. So he was doing terribly, and yet he won 23.5%. So he had a tenfold increase on his opinion polls. Why? Some, some, the main theorist is that he was really performed well in the only televised debate of the campaign, he was the youngest of the candidates to uh in the field of candidates at only 35 years of age. So I wondered if he was therefore more successful in tapping into the disaffected youth vote, which therefore more attracted to him as well. And he is seen as a an outsider. He is not part of the political elite, even though he has been in Congress for the last term or so. So I think all these factors could potentially explain and what fueled his rise. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think in this case, it was um, Jan Topic, who was polling very strongly in the run up to the election and actually fell, I think it was about 8% on the last opinion poll to leave him just outside of um, the top two candidates progressing. But yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the debate performance seemed to have been credited by a lot of people as being one of the strong reasons he made it into the second round. Because I think, as as I said to you, I think Ecuador's fundamentally divided between a group of people who would like um, Rafael Correa's politics back at the forefront um, of Ecuadorian politics, and then the rest of the population who are just looking for the best alternative to that. And I think if they see a charismatic performer in a debate like Daniel Neboa allegedly was, you can see how that can become the center of gravity for that kind of um, group of people in Ecuador because they'll be thinking, well, I need someone who is going to, in a campaign, be able to win over the type of people who I need to avoid return to careerism. And by all accounts, he's doing that because at the moment, um, opinion polls are suggesting that Daniel Naboa is the favoured candidate. Um, somewhere in the region of 55 to 60% of people seem to be supporting him when they have to declare a candidate for the runoff. So, I mean, opinion polls, we've already talked on this podcast that can they be trusted fully? I'm not sure, but both Guatemala and Ecuador seem to have a much better record with opinion polls in the second round than they do in the first round. So if that's anything to go by, um, Daniel Naboa's candidacy at the moment seems to be um, on course for a win. Yeah, I think that's the last point, the fact that it's second round. I think it's much easier to poll when you only have two candidates, whereas when there's a whole suite of candidates, and particularly when they each have very low shares of the vote, an addition of one or two people who switch their opinions could have a big impact on the overall result as well. Less so in Guatemala, uh, Ecuador, but in Guatemala, as I said earlier, the top candidate only got 21%, which is very low, basically. So I think, therefore, in that situation where even if one or two people from that poll opinion poll changes minds, you get a very different outcome and a different second-place finisher. So I think that's also to, something to do as well. And you talked about the backdrop of the elections. It's also very unparalleled what the similarities are because Ecuador is also facing rising crime violence and economic turmoil and cost of living. In fact, the homicide rate has increased fivefold in recent years in Ecuador. So there seems to be that pool of people who are ultimately discontent and dissatisfied with the country's politics and political institutions, which makes which can provide the seeds for the rise of the outsider as well. And particularly as well an outsider who could probably self-fund this campaign because Daniel Oboa is the son of one of the country's richest men and who himself was a perennial presidential candidate. In fact, in 2006, uh, Daddy Deboa's father lost to Rafael Correa himself. So I think that also has to be said as well. Moving on to uh, Luisa Gonzalez, I do wonder as well, is that I wonder if people sort of like the policy platform, but dislike the authoritarian nature and the corruption scandals that later had seared his presidency as well. So that enabled the fact that she has a level of support, probably among the poor who benefited from the social programs, but to the average middle-class voter concerned about corruption, that his corruption and being found guilty of it, and subsequently running away and being accusing the establishment of a political stitch-up, I think just fundamentally assured that there will be a critical mass of voters who will vote for anybody apart from Rafael Correa, as we saw in 2021. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's also worth saying that um, 
Luisa Gonzalez also was not the first choice um, for her party to take them into this election because allegedly, I was reading, they also approached um, former Vice President Jorge Glass, then they approached Andrea Rouse to run himself a second time, and then they approached Luisa Gonzalez. So I think even within the party, I think they were trying to find what they deemed to be the best vehicle to take them into this election. Um, but yeah, I mean... I think ideology does play a big role here because clearly there is a large proportion of the Ecuadorian population who are fans of careerism and that type of politics. I remember two years ago when Guillermo Lasso won this election and we did covered it on the podcast. We talked quite a lot about how this was quite unusual for this part of the world at the moment because Guillermo Lasso was relatively right wing. Um, his his. his his economic platform was certainly a lot more centre-right than Ecuador had been experiencing in the past. Um, for the region, him as a candidate represented something a little bit different because he was more like a, a former working-class or middle-class populist, nor was he um, a big left-wing ideo ideological character, which was unusual within the last um, 10 to 20 years in the region. So. I think Ecuador is struggling at the moment to find what its preferred um, policy platform is because careerism didn't seem to solve everything for everybody, nor did what Lasso has tried to do in the last two years. Um, and at the moment, Ecuador is, I think, 11th in the world in terms of income inequality. So there are big fundamental economic issues to solve here. Um, and I think whatever happens, um, either of these candidates may struggle to, to do that in the short term. And let's just assume in a hypothetical world that Daniel Naboa does win this election. What's the environment he's coming into? It's exactly the same as the problems that Guillermo Lasso was facing because it is a it is a careerista versus a politically inexperienced businessman in a national assembly that is exceptionally pro-career. I mean, the Citizens' Revolution movement gained 48 seats in this election. Naboa's party gained 13 seats. So the Citizens' Revolution movement gained nearly three times the amount of seats of Daniel Naboa's party and is by far the largest bloc in the National Assembly. So even if Daniel Naboa does win, is he going to have two years of exactly the same kind of problems that Guillermo Lasso was facing? I, I think that's one of the big things, really, is that that he's still going to face a similar problem. So I don't see what this election, sadly, for Ecuadorians will potentially solve on their behalf, though. But one thing I will say about this is that we now have another data point or what I think has been a big theme that, yes, Ecuador has been the outlier, but what has been the recent theme of, of elections we've covered in Latin and South America is that this election will represent a shift from the outgoing administration's ideology. In this case, from right-wing to either center-left, in Daniel Noboa's case, or left-wing ideology. And this is following the case of Guatemala, Chile, Ecuador in 2021, Peru, Brazil, Colombia, you know, potentially even Argentina in later in the year as well. So I think this is, if you, yes, Ecuador has been the outlier, but I think what you have really seen is that disaffection has also infected whoever the incumbent is. So you do not want the next president afterwards. And in Guatemala, the presidents cannot serve consecutive re-elections. If a president is stepping down, 
the voters are often choosing political parties or candidates who are associated with other ideologies. And if you yourself as a candidate is associated with another famous politician in the past, that is almost a black mark against you for getting to become president. Because we'll be able to see that in Ecuador, similar in Guatemala, similar in Peru, isn't it, Sam? I think I think that's a good point. It is sort of the anti-incumbency effect, which makes sense because one of the golden rules of um, politics that we've been talking about for the three years we've been doing this podcast is that if the fundamentals of the country are not in good shape, the economy being one of the primary ones of that, you as an incumbent um, person, but also as an incumbent party and an incumbent ideological approach, um, may struggle. And I think Latin America has been um, a key... Uh, has been a key evidence of that. And you add in crime and corruption and now narco politics, seems drug politics as well, coming to the fore, you know, you can really see the ingredients for a change candidate to really come out of nowhere and take the presidency, isn't it? So is that what you think is going to happen in a few weeks' time? Is Daniel Naboa going to take the presidency? I think so. I think it's more like we're going to see a rerun of 2021 where it's a bit like in Guatemala where... Luis Gonzalez is able to get the pro-Korea vote, but there's just a fundamental, critical, larger mass of people who dislike Rafael Correa, the fact he was sentenced for corruption in absentia, and therefore will vote for whoever is not Rafael Correa or his candidate. And Luis Gonzalez has been not subtle whatsoever in trying, in wrapping her candidacy around Rafael Correa itself. So I think that is likely to be the case. Um, what do you? What about you, Sam? Do you think that she's he is likely to become president? Yeah, I think you just sort of have to look back to two years ago when Guillermo Lasso won the presidency. Is that it? Did seem a bit of a surprise at the time that he'd won the presidency. He won it relatively narrowly. I think it was something like, I think it was fifty-two forty-eight, if I remember correctly. So it might be that we see a relatively close election, especially in the context of what's happened to Lasso's candidacy. But yeah, I do agree with you. I think I would give the narrow edge to Daniel Naboa. I think history would give the narrow edge to Daniel Naboa going into this election. Um, so I think I do too. Well, here's a fun fact for you. If Daniel Naboa is expected to win, do you know how much his salary is per month in US dollars? I don't know, but this is a fun fact. $6,000. That's it. Wow. <laughs> So you either have to be a billionaire or get money from other means, isn't it? Well, that's a fun fact to end on. So for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next time when we will be previewing the upcoming elections in Slovakia. And as always, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>